As always, deep appreciation for being able to sit with you. Thank you for your practice. Take a few minutes for any questions that you might have about anything you noticed tonight or anything about the teachings, something that feels fairly immediate though, not overly theoretical, and remembering that any comment or question or description that you offer will likely be of some use or benefit to someone else. So it's part of our practice of dana, feel free, in other words, let go. And uh, please, Annalisa. Just an experience today, um, uh, I didn't want to uh, open my eyes. You know, I'm not picking up any of it. I didn't want to open my eyes. You did not want it, you did not want it to end, is that? Yeah. Yes. I was enjoying uh, the practice. What was that last? I was enjoying the practice. You the were practice. enjoying the practice? Yeah. That's beautiful. So how, does in, how can we enjoy the practice without also conditioning the habit of clinging, holding on to it. And it really, the way we work with that is we just notice the enjoyment and we notice the clinging and we put both to good use. So it's good that you notice that you didn't want it to end and clinging. I don't know if you recognize it as clinging. Yes, you did. You yeah. got a good <laughs> sense of humor. And uh, also the enjoyment. And in fact, the clinging makes the enjoyment less. So we're enjoying it, and then you go, I, want, I don't want this to end. And there's a little tension with that. So it's always interesting to notice what happens to that, that wish for it to stay when you notice it as another object of meditation, when you notice, oh, this is clinging. Mm -hmm. What happens to the clinging? Does it continue? Um, or does it... Does it vanish? I think it's an interesting question that I have to ask myself. I probably, um, I felt completely in a moment where I never experienced practice the way I used to experience practice. So maybe I was discovering something new of the practice. I didn't hear so well, but I got a feeling you were saying you were feeling something new about the yeah. practice. Yes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, what, I think we get kind of exuberant about those moments where, it, where it's new and, and there is a tendency to want to hold on to it. But as you go along, you will have lots of kinds of experiences like that. And we, we learn how to feel the, the joy of practice and hopefully in time without clinging, knowing that the joy will come and the sorrows will come and we, we try to really enjoy it when it's there. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Please, right up here. Thank you, Noemi. And please put the microphone close to your mouth. Yeah, is that good? Perfect. Okay. I had a very different experience, which was I couldn't wait for it to end. <laughs> I felt... 
There was a lot of tension in my lower back and in my neck, and I felt very restless, almost as if I had the impulse to open my eyes every few minutes. Yes, that's very unpleasant, isn't it? No, I had a little bit of that too. I, my neck was stiff tonight. But uh, ideally, when, when that happens, we try to treat it as part of the practice. You know, what, we, what you hear, if you've read the third Zen patriarch, he says, what, when you set up what you like against what you don't like, that's the disease of the mind. And we like it when it's pleasant. We don't like it when it's unpleasant. But our practice moves toward a non-judgmental awareness of, of things that are uncomfortable. And seeing if it's possible to have that experience of discomfort and not be so reactive to it, to really just know that. And, and if you do notice that you're reactive, just as I was saying, when you notice there's clinging, when you notice there's condemning, you sense what that's like. And you'll see that a lot of the stress then has as much to do with the reaction to the discomfort as it is to the discomfort. So it's, it's good to be able to tease out the difference between pain and suffering. So thanks for describing that. I'm sure you're not alone. Anybody else have some discomfort? Join the club. <laughs> the beauty of Sangha is we, we community is we, we all have the human experience of being in a body and you sit long enough and you'll feel things that are difficult. Yeah. And isn't it, just one last little aside, isn't it interesting, you know, we, we rely on this clock called, and the, what we call conventional time. It ticks at a certain cadence, certain rhythm, and it, we can, we can, generally intuit what's a half hour, what's 15 minutes, what's an hour. But you, seem, you start to notice that time is really relative. When something's pleasant, time flies. It seems very fast. When it's unpleasant, it seems like an eternity to sit five minutes. So I find it very interesting to notice how my perception of time is altered by whether something's pleasant or unpleasant. And just to take note of that. Any last comments, questions before we take a little break? Please, Aoife, over and right behind. Hello? Is it working? Oh, Close okay. to the... Pl okay. Um, I show up every day to meditate. You medit show... Show up every day to meditate, but... For months, for months, I have not been able to be present in the deeper way that I would like to be present. Not and able I, to be present in the deeper way that, yeah. And I sometimes I vary the amount of time that I meditate to see if that will help wake me up. But so, it, what is the predominant experience? Uh, thinking. Oh, thinking. So, so a little bit lost in thought. For months. <laughs> okay. Wow. Yeah, that's enough to, that will help dysregulate your nervous system. Whatever we're absorbed in of the past, the future, our historical self, 
the, the ideas of the world will dysregulate our nervous system. That, and so that's why it's so important to have, have these moments, and especially with support of others, to anchor our attention in our body. And uh, how about when you come here? It's better. It's better. It's better. So a little yeah. bit more support in, in numbers. Mm -hmm. And when you sit at home, how do you re relate to the thinking mind when you notice it? When you notice that the mind is thinking a lot, what do you do at that? What's, what's your reaction or response to that experience? Well, I'm very happy that I woke up. You're happy that you woke up. But then I go back into thought. It's, then you just, it's uncanny how much thinking. <laughs> so I, I have a feeling you've built up a little bit of aver, aversion to thinking. <laughs> Maybe. But I'm doing so much of it. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm, I'm speaking to everyone here. Yeah. I think we really do have to befriend the thinking mind. Okay, all right. Yeah. You have to befriend it because a thought is to our mind as mm -hmm. a sound is to the ear. As long as we're definition of birth, leading cause of thinking, mm -hmm. every, everybody mm -hmm. thinks. We're thinking machines. Mm -hmm. And the thoughts are, are thinking themselves all okay. the time. Mm -hmm. Not all the time. There are gaps. Mm -hmm. and the mindfulness and the training of mindfulness starts to interrupt that, just that stream of mm. absorption. But it, sometimes it's really very persistent. So it's really important that you befriend it okay. and not add any kind of tension around it because you do, here's the law. Thinking is just the waves of your mind. If you're bothered by those waves, they'll torment you. <laughs> If you're not bothered by the thinking mind, mm. you just notice it as thinking mind, transform your relationship mm. to the thinking mind, the thinking mind will, you'll start to see more of the discontinuity of it, the gaps in it. You'll enjoy the gaps, enjoy the quiet, mm. but you'll also understand that, yeah, the thinking mind thinks, and it's, and it's not personal, it's not your fault. Mm. Now, having said all of that, sometimes it's a symptom the thinking mind, excessive thinking mind, is a kind of symptom or a second-hand version of, of an underlying emotional disturbance or an emotional experience that isn't being felt or metabolized. Mm. And so ideally, without judging the thinking at all, without doing, without doing psychotherapy on yourself, not trying to figure anything out, the moment that you notice that wake up from the thinking mind, just drop into your body, just sense, sense what's, what's your body doing at that moment, what's the state, and, and rest your attention for a little while in what we call the emotional centers, the throat, the heart center, the chest, the solar plexus and belly, and just hover there for a moment, just sense what's the state of my mind and body right now, and then just Use that as an opportunity to settle, to have your mind in the same place as your body for a little while. And you may, in that process, you may get some information. Not that you're figuring anything out, you're just sensing what may be more primary, mm -hmm. that you're getting the secondhand version by all the discursive thinking. Mm -hmm. 
So if nothing more, you'll be settled back in your body. And, and that process of putting your mind in your body and your body in your mind over and over again, the two come together and that often pacifies the, the thinking mind. Okay. So good luck. Thanks. Thank you and please say hello to your neighbor and we'll start in just a few minutes. So feel free to have tea though, use the restrooms. Don't go away, little Dharma down. Thanks for sticking around. I know the impulse often at this time of the evening is to head for the hills, go home, crawl in bed. My, my friend Hanuman, who I speak to every Tuesday before the, the group says, you know, everyone should be climbing into bed at five o'clock this time of year anyway, that, that we should actually call off the sitting until the spring. <laughs> but, I, but I assured him that it was lovely walking down Valencia and it was, beautiful evening and that uh, depends on how your energy system works, but I'm happy you're here. I was sent a letter today that I thought would just be our starting point for a, a little visit to the world of compassion tonight. Uh, our compassion is really needed for our unhoused neighbors right here. Uh, but anyway, I want to read this letter first and we'll circle around to get to all that, all that would be helpful to uh, let come closer to our hearts and all the, the many myriad difficulties that show up in our own lives and in the lives of, of others. This was a letter that uh, the congresswoman, uh, uh, I've not, I, I can always screw up her first name, Ilan Omar. Uh, she sent a letter to the judge of the case of the person who, who pleaded guilty to uh, threatening um, murder um, of her, uh, said he wanted to kill her and that he would put a bullet in her head and, and it's, it's against the law, cl clearly. And so there is the possibility that he could be sentenced to 10 years in prison. And this is what Congresswoman Omar sent to the judge. And I just thought it was beautiful. Honorable Judge Jirasi or something, Jirash. As you deliberate the sentencing of Patrick W. Carlineo, Jr., a man convicted of threatening my life, I write to ask you for a system of compassion to be applied in his sentencing. There is no doubt that Mr. Carlino, Carlino I, I'll never get his name right, his crime is grave. Threatening assassination of a public official in our country is dangerous to both the individual and our republic. Our fragile democratic system rests on the peaceful election of those in power. As someone who fled a war zone, I know how destabilizing acts of political violence can be. That his threat of violence relied on hateful stereotypes about my faith only makes it more dangerous. This was not just a threat against me as an individual, 
It was a threat against an entire religion at a time of rising hate crimes against religious minorities in our country. But we must ask who we are as a nation if we respond to threats of political retribution with retribution ourselves. The answer to hate is not more hate, it is compassion. Punishing the defendant with a lengthy prison sentence or a burdensome financial fine would not rehabilitate him. It would not repair the harm he has caused. It would only increase his anger and resentment. A punitive approach to criminal justice will not stop, stop criminals like Mr. Carlinio from committing a crime against or prevent others from committing similar acts. Only restorative justice can do that. He should understand the consequences of his actions, be given the opportunity to make amends and seek redemption. If we truly want to prevent crimes like his, we must address the root causes of these crimes. The desire to commit violence is not inherent in people. People who threaten or commit violence are often themselves the victims of systemic alienation and neglect. They seek violence because they are taught violence. We must address the systemic alienation through community reintegration and social services. Threats of political violence and hate speech are not unique to Mr. Carlinio. They are an increasing feature in our public sphere. We will not defeat it with anger and exclusion. We will defeat it with compassion. As Nelson Mandela said, people must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. We must teach the defendant to love. For this reason, I do not believe the defendant would be served by a severe prison sentence or substantial financial fine and ask you to show compassion in your sentencing. Thank you for your careful consideration. I really don't have to say anything else. It speaks for itself, but I, um, I wanted to tie this together with, the, with what you're doing here tonight. God, I made that gesture and I felt like Bernie Sanders just now. <laughs> the strange feeling, channeling Bernie. <laughs> um, the heart of the Buddha's teaching, as many of you know, is is being able to to come to a, a meditative understanding, not an intellectual understanding, a meditative understanding, a direct, immediate experience that allows you to see experience through the illusion of separate individuality, see through the illusion of, of this historical self this view of ourselves as separate apart from the flow of life, to see through that illusion of separate self and consequently, through direct experience, see through the illusion of other. It's being able to sense that our, our usual, our conventional way of experiencing things based on the, the historical sense of ourselves as quite separate, our conventional views reinforces feelings of otherness, of separate, and 
the wider that chasm grows or that gap between so-called self and other, the farther away we are from actually experiencing each other really intimately. And as one sees through that illusion of separateness, the natural face of that, of that um, realization is this, uh, is this, this luminous mind that, that's, that sees, a, that is transparent, that sees that everything is completely uh, interwoven with one another. The expression in one's heart as that illusion of self melts away, the expression of the heart is this spontaneous, uh, unconditional goodwill. And I say unconditional because it expresses itself equally toward all things and all beings. It's not sentimental. It's more of a universal feeling of, of compassion and caring. And of course, it will express itself individually through each person in their own unique way. But compassion is the is the uh, face of emptiness, you could say. And our lack of compassion is often tied to the same dynamics in our consciousness that also keep us bound in the identity view of, of self, caught up in our self ideas. I don't know if, if that language may not mean that much to you, but there is a difference between the view of yourself as a separate individual, a, a kind of narrative, a, a, a sense and a feeling that goes with that view of separateness. There's a difference between that, that view of self and the direct experience of yourself, which is really not a self. It's just life. It's not a, it's, it's not something you can put in words. It's not historical. It's the presence of awareness, you could say. Kind of intrinsic wakefulness. And with that, all these qualities that flow. Again, it expresses itself individually, but the it's different than the version of you that plays in your mind that, that then reinforces itself through our thoughts and feelings and actions and habits. That's more of the historical self. The more we get caught in the historical self, the less we tend to feel uh, connected to each other. The same dynamics that keep us bound in that self-view are the same dynamics that keep us separate from feeling connected to our neighbors outside, othering uh, other, other beings, other groups, other people. So in the, just, it's a little technical dharma, but one of the little teachings that I love is the teachings on what's, what are called the five skandhas, or the five aggregates. That the sense of ourself, the sense of me, even though me is usually related to an identity with the body, identity with mood, identity with feelings, the sense of me 
is based on, on five things that are always happening every moment. There, is, there are these senses, there's contact, there's feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant or unpleasant. There's perception, there's, there's sensing what some, what's going on. It's perceiving what's going on. And there's, so there's contact, there's feeling, there's perception, there's mental formations. There's reactions, there's mental reactions, there's views, there's opinions. And of course, those opinions and views about what's happening depend a lot on the previous one called perception. What's going on? Perception's based on memory. Perception is also based on the proximity of, of our observation. How close are we to what we are experiencing? Are we experiencing it at a distance where we can, we can see ourselves? See, from a distance, I look like I'm my body. And it looks like the body is me and the body is mine. That's from a distance. If I come close to this body, if I study this body from a very close range, you know, if we put it under a microscope, well, all we find is space. We don't find any body. We don't find any me. We find just these processes, these... And even experientially, I just experience streaming, vibrating, pulsing, all these functions happening, but nowhere in that can I find a self. So due to the proximity of my normal observation, this body-mind process, these five skandhas that are just flipping on and off, literally flashing moment to moment, this body-mind process is being perceived as a thing. And as long as I perceive this body as a thing and myself as a thing, then I perceive you as another. But somewhere in the span of practice, I start to see that, that, that because of the proximity that I've been experiencing myself at a distance, in a kind of conceptual way I've been seeing myself, more just the, just the way I was taught of who I am and what I am, I'm my body, I'm my thoughts, I'm my feelings, all that stuff. When I come a little closer through direct experience and start to see that what I took to be myself was just these five things flashing on and off. Contact, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness is the fifth one. But nowhere in that sense of five aggregates, nowhere in there is there a self. It's just these five processes happening moment by moment by moment by moment. So meditatively, I have put myself under a microscope and I have, what's been revealed is that what I took to be such a separate individual, it kind of melts into the fabric of life and, and I can no longer find myself as I imagined. I can find a, a moment to moment experience but I, as well, I can't find other. And it is the same because of this tendency to other, to experience others from a distance. From a distance. We tend to have certain views and opinions, just like uh, Representative Omar, who's, who was the victim of this person experiencing her 
through misperception because of the how far away that person was basically trained in in Islamophobia and uh, and racism. He was he's an avowed racist and Islamophobe. He even declares it and honestly admits it. The guy who was uh, threatened her life. But he, like anyone who has learned to hate through, through misperception, through viewing life from a distance, if that person is brought closer to understand who this representative is, where she comes from, her tribe, her, you know, her experience, it might be different. Many of you have probably heard this story before. It's just an example of the difference of when, our pers- when the proximity of our observation is brought a little bit closer, where we get more information about why somebody does something. Imagine walking along a sidewalk with your arms full of groceries and someone roughly bumps into you so that you fall and your groceries are strewn all over the ground. As you rise up from the puddle of broken eggs and tomato juice, you are ready to shout out, you idiot, what's wrong with you? Are you blind? But just before you catch your breath you sp- to speak, you see that the person who bumped into you is actually blind. He too is sprawled in the spilled groceries and your anger vanishes in an instant to be replaced by a sympathetic concern. Are you hurt? Can I help you up? Our situation is like that. When we clearly realize that the source of disharmony and misery in the world is ignorance, we can open the door of wisdom and compassion. No matter what has happened, we can always return to the greatness of heart. Another story while I'm at it in this, I've got a little group of stories that I've found very useful. This is from Pema Chodron, a story she told about a young woman who found herself in a small, a young American woman found herself in a small town in the Middle East surrounded by people who were jeering, yelling, and threatening to throw stones at her and her friends just because they were Americans. Of course she was terrified and what happened to her is important. Suddenly she identified with every person through history who had ever been scorned or hated. She understood what it was like to be despised for any reason, ethnic group, racial background, sexual preference, gender. Something cracked wide open and she stood in the shoes of millions of oppressed people and saw with a new perspective. She even understood her shared humanity with those who hated her. The sense of deep connection of belonging to the same family is the awakening of the great heart of compassion. So 
I think Representative Omar's letter said it all, but what we can, we can do in terms of our world is stay well informed, but what we do as meditators is that we dismantle that in us, we slowly, gradually dismantle that in us which keeps us in a state of, of separateness, of isolation of what the Buddha called avidya or ignorance or wrong view, the view of ourselves as independent or apart from each other. That truly, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, we, we inter-are with each other. We are not separate. We, we exist completely dependent on each other. And the longer we think that we are all alone in this world and keep spinning in that vortex of separateness, uh, it, this is the very condition that creates the reinforcement of other. And then out of, out of our dis-ease, we tend to, instead of having our dis-ease melt into compassion, our dis-ease turns into vengeance. It turns into judgment. It turns into blaming someone for how disconnected we feel how isolated, how hard-hearted we feel. So our practice is really the process of melting the heart. And one of the ways we do that is through, through intentionally inclining our heart toward compassion. To, I actually brought along a little, I'll forget it. So I don't want to get into the, the whole practice of compassion tonight, but it's essentially, and you can do it right now, just bring someone to mind. Just any human to mind. And just reflect for a moment on their difficulties, their sorrows, their longings, the things that in their life that are hard to bear. And just anyone who you know has that in their life. And then hold them in your heart with compassion and wish for them. May you be held in compassion. May your suffering ease. I care about your suffering. And just hold them. And then turn after you've spent a few moments with that feeling, turn toward yourself. Reflect on your own sorrows and difficulties, things in your life that are hard to bear, your frustrated desires, your fragile pride, your challenges with, with being in a body, your challenges with discursive thoughts, whatever it is in your life that's hard to bear, really take that in with and bring to it as much care and compassion as you can. I care about you. I care about my suffering. May my suffering ease. Isn't that, don't, you, don't we all want that for ourselves?
So part of the, the doorway to compassion is to extend in this way to ourselves, to others, until there's no one excluded from that field of compassion. Bring to mind all of our neighbors, all of our unhoused neighbors, and just consider them a little bit more, hover a little bit more, consider what they are dealing with day in and day out. This is a terrible place to be homeless, San Francisco. And the, often there's mental illness connected, often there's drug, drug addiction, often there is, there's just, you know, just one, just a loss of a job or, or the gentrification, evictions, and people are on the streets. Just taking that in, letting that really tenderize your heart, melting that wall of separateness. So that's one doorway. The other is to sink deeply into that in you which has no inside and has no outside, a direct experience of that non-separateness that we experience when our mind is free of its usually usual preoccupations when we settle when we become quiet and just as a way of ending i know i've gone too far tonight but i want to read the a poem from robert hall who is a spirit rock teacher who recently passed away who was um, a good friend and and uh, really special teacher. He was the right-hand person to uh, Fritz Perls, the founder of Gestalt Therapy, and he was a um, really innovative, visionary psychiatrist who brought together meditation and uh, mind-body therapies. But anyway, he, was, he became a poet in his later years as his heart freed from its own constrictions and his own sorrows as they released he he felt this great fullness of life and expressed beautifully in this poem this poem entitled call off the search i walk upstairs i walk downstairs i wander into the kitchen and i look through a doorway into the living room with all its books and oriental carpets but i can't find the point of it all can't reach into what I'm looking for until I sit down in the corner, pull my blanket over my head, close my eyes, look into the interior rooms, and listen for what is moving in there. And again, be amazed that there is a river, constant and uncreated, flowing, announcing itself with the sound of life everlasting, bursting into this wrinkled brain substance, translating itself into muscle, bone, fat, connective tissue, and dreams. When I bathe in that immediacy, I never have to search for anything again. 
So may we all call off the search and realize that we are what we are looking for and that the heart of compassion exists as the natural expression of our own being. And may all beings realize the heart of wisdom and compassion. And may our life and all people's lives be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all, not just for ourselves. May all beings be liberated. May all beings awaken to compassion. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thanks for letting me r muck around in the five skandhas. It's a, that was kind of the shorthand version, believe me. But uh, it, it is something to look into at some point, and maybe we'll do a whole evening on the skandhas, but on the aggregates. But thanks for listening, and thanks for your practice, and hope to see you next week. Thanks for your generosity as well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.